0: Welcome to Archimedes, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This month, as most months, we've got two evidence-based clinical questions triggered from clinicians working in the field where they've gone away, formulated a question, and acquired the best evidence to answer that. They've appraised it and brought it into a sort of clinical context to tell us how we can take the life forwards. We've also got a rather more debatey piece than usual when we're talking about what critical appraisal is all about. You see, the thing is, there's a title. Intervention should not be undertaken without evidence. Discuss. It's been a debate topic at a number of conferences, online student societies and fora, that sort of thing. Should an intervention without evidence ever be undertaken? Now, underlying this, there are a couple of clear key elements. One, the idea that there can be an intervention with no evidence. And two, that an absence of evidence should be interpreted as evidence of an absence of effect. Both of these are straw men. We have covered this many times before. We've battered on about the need for real EBM to be the combination of best available evidence, viewed through a lens of clinical expertise, and decided in conjunction with patients. And it's only by doing this that you can make an appropriate choice, and really by doing EBM. Best available means exactly that. So for some things, there are multiple well-conducted, randomized controlled trials. And for others, there's a case report that once someone with a similar condition got better. Sometimes there's even less. Sometimes it truly is never been previously done. But in that setting, we're talking about research, not evidence-based medicine. Beyond that sort of conceptually, you can think about the parachute of evidence. There is some evidence that is your direct main parachute and some evidence that is your indirect side parachutes that might deploy if the main one doesn't. Then there's the idea that if you don't have evidence of something working, then it doesn't work. Mm. Now there is a difference between this ultraviolet pen torch might well cure your glioblastoma multiforme with its pink rays and intranasal diamorphine has good analgesic effects. I wonder if intranasal oxycodone might. There's a sort of basic issue of functional credibility, but there's also an issue beyond that of precision, uncertainty, and what truth really means. I don't know that this is different from this is different than I know this is no different from this other thing. So this is not really a question to debate. It's a question to unpick and then reject as fundamentally misunderstanding what real EBM is. Now the first of our clinical questions comes all the way from Melbourne in Australia and it's from doctors Carr and Smeeters and professors Curtis and Steer. It concerns looking after a 7 year old who has toxic shock syndrome from group A streptococcal infection and you're aware that you do contact tracing and prophylactic treatment for people who've got meningococcal disease but wonder, should you do that for this sort of toxic group A strep? And so the team went off and they did a very broad search of two different electronic databases, came back with 800 and more hits, screened all of those and got down to four community-based series of group A strep infection and then consequent secondary cases. In addition to the electronic searching, they went through all of the references and hand-searched those out to see if there were any extras, but didn't find any in that way. The reason that they concentrated on the community-based studies was that they thought the transmission uh, and factors involved in it might be different if it was an institutional setting or a residential home, that sort of thing. What these studies show is they look at whole populations over a period of time, sort of 18 months or two years or so, and, and they show that the group A strep infection rate in those People who are close contacts, household contacts of the index case, is something like 18 to 165 times more likely to happen. These are still exceptionally rare occurrences, though. The background rate is about 1 to 3 per 100,000 patient years. So if it goes up to 200 in 100,000 patient years, it's still a really very rare occurrence. That is approximately 13 secondary cases in a population of approximately 84 million people. So this is a very low-risk affair, but a very greatly increased relative risk if you're a secondary um, case, a household contact. Now, this is... A particularly dangerous disease. The mortality rate from sort of group A streptoxic shock somewhere around the ten percent level, and so there's a query then as to whether, in this very rare condition, with an increased risk amongst in household contacts, is it worth giving them chemoprophylaxis with antibiotics? Well, as you can imagine, there are no randomised control trials to see if that makes a difference. But there again, in meningococcal disease, the only sort of real data that we have comes from institutional settings. and, And that, again, might be different, but we take that on. The advice varies across the different countries. But in terms of the question, is there an increased risk? Pretty clearly there is. Is there anything you can definitely do about it? Well, maybe, but maybe that wouldn't work. And so they leave it with the clinician to discuss the increased risk and the potential benefits of taking group A strep as a chemoprophylactic agent against that um, to each individual jurisdiction. The other clinical question this month also comes from two doctors from Australia, Amy Keir and Bernard Frostler, who are in Adelaide, and Simon Stamford from NHS Blood and Transplant in Oxford. What this concerns is something really quite different. There's a well 38 weaker that's born with no prenatal complications and not a particularly exciting delivery, but is seen a couple of hours later because the midwife thinks that it looks pale. On review, the SHO does think that the baby looks pale, and the cap refill is relatively prolonged at about three seconds. A blood glass undertaken at this time shows a pH of 7.2 with a base excess of minus 11. So the child is brought into the neonatal unit, given broad-spectrum antibiotics and given a bolus of fluid to treat the acidosis. And the question is asked, why? Is there any benefit from giving a fluid bolus to a child who's relatively well to treat an acidosis? Well, again, two electronic databases were extensively searched with over 400 potential hits. 14 full-text articles examined in great detail, two of which were formally included, and a third, looking at gastroschisis, is commented on, but really sets in a different population. What these studies show are that there's really very little evidence to answer that question. They're both cohort studies looking at 23 or 98 babies respectively, and looking at C- what the influence of having being given a fluid bolus is on the relative outcomes. One of them are babies who had a persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn and were given fluid boluses. Well, those that were given fluid boluses had an increased risk of mortality, but they also had other features that were suggestive that they were higher risk or more unwell babies. The smaller group was given to babies who needed resuscitation at term, again, looked to see which of those babies had a fluid bolus, and the babies that got a fluid bolus were at an increased risk of death again. Actually, that's also in keeping with the babies who had gastroschisis. The ones who had more fluid boluses were more likely to have problems. The big issue here, clearly, is that being observational studies, what we can't separate out is Is it the babies who are more unwell, therefore have a higher risk of death or complications, that are being given the fluid boluses, that is fluid boluses are merely an association or a way of marking out the unwell children, or is it that fluid boluses are actively detrimental to unwell neonates? Of course there's no direct study here with a baby who is relatively well with suspected sepsis but without actually any really strong evidence of severe illness to say whether a fluid bolus would be a good or bad idea. It's certainly not something we should be taking lightly as an awful lot of small interventions in little people can cause problems rather than definitely causing benefits and um, It's good that we've moved away from using blood products to give the fluid boluses for because they carry their own risks of viruses that we have and have not yet discovered. The clinical bottom line is that there's really very little evidence to guide this practice that we should be aware that the babies that receive fluid boluses, possibly because they are more unwell, are at higher risk of death. And there's little to guide a neonatologist one way or the other in the setting of the feast trial and the things like that it does make you wonder a little bit about our previous understanding of how we should give fluid to people that are unwell and really questions how much we can take for granted and how much we do traditionally that might not be as good as we'd like. Well if these questions have your interest, if you live in Australia or even in other places, we do accept Archimedes articles from places that aren't just Australia or Oxford, then please do get in touch via Twitter on adc_bmj underscore BMJ or via the journal website. We would love to hear your Archimedes questions and put them through the process and you too could be a guest star of the monthly Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Until next month, thank you for listening and goodbye.